Well, I invite you to turn with me to, uh, to John chapter 4. Uh, this is a fantastic story we're going to look at uh, this, this week. It's the story about the healing of the nobleman's son. And I want to talk about uh, a zigzag path toward transformation from these verses. I want to start off by talking, uh, taking you back to the year 1903. 1903 in Paris, France, there were two magazines, Le Vilo and Loto. How's that for my French accent? These two magazines were competing to see who would be the dominant magazine in the market. And in the spirit of friendly or maybe not so friendly competition, they organized a bike race that would go throughout uh, all of France. And thus, the Tour de France was born. That first year, it went from Paris down to Marseille, Marseille around the coast, up back to Paris. They didn't realize how big, incredibly big, this would become over time, but it did. It became huge. Uh, in that first year, um, there was a guy who was uh, a chimney sweep, who apparently had lungs that were still aerobically active, and he was able to, uh, to secure uh, the victory. Uh, the purse that year was, was huge given the time. It was 12,000 francs, which was six times what the average worker would make in about a year. The pace was grueling. And in that first year, uh, spectators said they saw the competitors weeping in pain as they were riding mile after mile after mile, weeping in pain. That was uh, in the... Uh, in, in the early <coughs> articles about it. Well, you can't imagine, uh, you can imagine in the early days how kind of quirky and, and crazy this was. They had to fight bulls along the way. Uh, they had to, were constantly drenched with mud. Uh, when they, w these guys would come through a town, you know, the butcher and the, he would be all excited about it and his apprentice, and you can't see it in the picture, but here's a guy, uh, writing, he's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and he's getting his blood pressure taken. A <laughs> uh, little crazy, yeah, a little crazy. But look what it's become in the intervening years. This has become the dominant sport in Europe, and just like we know the names of LeBron James and Russell Westbrook and so on and so forth, they knew the names uh, of all the cyclists. We've heard of Lance Armstrong and others you know, in Europe, they know the names of, of all these cyclists. Now, this year, if you go to the Tour de France, you have to go up this zigzag path up to a city in the Alps. I'm not even going to pronounce its name. But uh, this zigzag path is brutal. Here you've raced the entire way through France, through the mountains, and if you're going to win the race, you've got to make it up this zigzag path. It's three kilometers, but it is rough. It is, it is really difficult. 21 hairpin turns, it's very steep. But once you get there, you win. Uh, to win is not up a straight path. If you want to win, you've got to go up a zigzag path. And I would say that principle holds true in a relationship with Jesus as well. Every human being who's ever lived has thought everybody else has pain in life. Everybody else may take the zigzag path. I don't think I will. I'm not going to have a zigzag path in my marriage. It's going to be smooth sailing. 
I'm not going to have a zigzag path in my family. Everything's going to go just great. My career is going to be a straight path upward and toward the right. No zigzag path there as well. My health will increase as I age. No quirks, no difficulties there as well. The idea is that everybody else has gone through trials, heartache, difficulty. Not me. I think I can beat it if I try really hard and be really intentional. Here's the problem. That never takes place. That never takes place. Genuine transformation always goes along the zigzag path. Transformation never goes along the way that we expect. It would be amazing if that were the case, but it's, it's just simply not the case. Here are the guys going up the zigzag path up to the top of the, to the mountain in the Tour de France. Everybody's got to go through it. You've got to go through it as well. And what I want to do this morning from this story is show you how you navigate the zigzag path toward transformation. And it is a fantastic story. So to start off, I want you to imagine a posse of travelers racing furiously on horseback from the village of Capernaum to the village of Cana. If you are envisioning, as I hope you are, a, a western with people riding on horseback, I think you'll capture the story pretty well as, you, as we see it unfold. We start off uh, with John 4, 43. After, the two days, uh, after two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was a royal official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down to heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. Now, a little background. This, this posse of writers has approached Jesus in Galilee. They're breathless from the ride. Right in the middle of the posse is a man who is clearly the leader. And um, as this man is looking at Jesus, he makes this dominant request. Jesus, come quick. My son is about to die. Now let's pause from that for a second. I want you to imagine how you would feel if you're one of the disciples. If you're one of the disciples, you have spent the last two days in Samaria, uh, and you have had an amazing two days. You saw the woman at the well come to Christ. You saw the woman at the well lead many people in the village of Sychar to Christ. Then you were invited into the village of Sychar, which was crossing major uh, racial boundaries in those days, and you realize that the God of the universe can unite people together, Jews and Samaritans, into a oneness that was supernatural. You're on a, a major spiritual high. And so Jesus says, okay, guys, um, we, we need to go. Where to? We're going to go up to Galilee. And the reason why is that a prophet doesn't have any honor in his hometown. Jesus' home region was Jerusalem. Because that's where the religious leaders should have accepted him. He was from Nazareth. I, I realize that. His adopted hometown was Capernaum. 
But his home region is Jerusalem. That's where the people should have accepted him as their Messiah. He didn't have any honor there. He said, we're, we're, going, up to, we're going up to Galilee. Okay, where to? Cana. Awesome. Awesome. Like there, there was a miracle that took place in Cana. We've just seen some miracles in Samaria. We're going back to Cana. It's going to be miracle time. That is, that is really pretty cool. But the way Jesus does what he's about to do shocks the disciples and everybody else. Now, <clears throat> when we think about this, uh, this dad who's come to Jesus, we have to kind of pause for a second and think about this guy. This guy is not a low-level politician. Uh, the Greek word that's used is basilikos, uh, and it means a royal official, and this would have been a royal official of the household of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was uh, one of six Herods named in the Bible. He's the son of Herod the Great. And just like you're familiar with the politics of Barack Obama and Donald Trump, Jesus was very familiar with the politics of Herod Antipas. Herod founded two cities, Sepphoris and Tiberias. Both these cities were very well known in the ancient world, and Herod Antipas built these things almost from scratch. The guy was a phenomenal builder, a phenomenal, phenomenal leader. But this official did not live in the upscale cities of Sepphoris or Tiberias, which were very prominent, very upscale, very pagan cities. He lived in Capernaum up, up in the north, which meant he was a young, aggressive, up-and-coming leader who was on the fast track to big-time success because Capernaum was uh, at the intersection of a number of different highways. A lot of tax revenue came into Capernaum. Young, aggressive leader. And, uh, I mean, he's going places. And let me be really clear. You don't become a big-time leader in Herod's household by being Mr. Nice Guy. That, that, didn't, that didn't happen. He is powerful. He is proud. He knows how to bludgeon people with his authority. He's politician to the core. He's pursuing his own self-interests. And the common people who see him in Cana and in Capernaum, they don't like him because he is, he is not a nice guy. So the guy on the horseback looking at Jesus is a guy who's cunning, proud, aggressive. What could possibly drive him to go from Capernaum to Cana to seek healing? He's got a sick son. And you know, you know what happens to powerful people? Powerful people are driven to their knees when their kids get sick. They are. When you see your child lying on his bed or her bed in a fever, it breaks you as a dad. And here's a man who is, who is broken. Th think about this child. This child gets a fever in the afternoon. He's lying on his bed in a sweat in the evening. By midnight, he's having febrile seizures. And early in the morning, he's at death's door. And this father is broken by this. And so, he's a father first, and he is a politician second. So what does he do? Well, he's a big-time royal official. There is no way he would have walked from Capernaum to Cana. No way. This guy has transportation. He has a horse. 
And there's no way he traveled alone. He's a big-time royal official. He has people who help him. He has an entourage. He has handlers who work with him. Hence, a posse on horseback going to get Jesus. And when he blurts out his question, we sense he has a little bit of theology. Because apparently, um, he says, come down to heal my son, he's about to die. Apparently realizes, okay, Jesus can heal if he is right next to the person whom he's healing. Like Jesus can heal if he's next to the person and maybe can lay hands on his body. So I can envision that this man brought a horse with him, a saddled up horse. And he says, here Jesus is the horse, get on the horse, and we're going back to Capernaum. That's what I'm envisioning, because he wants him to come quick. How's Jesus going to come? He's going to walk? I don't think so. Not if everybody else is, is on horseback. What this man does not know is that Jesus can heal at a distance. What this man does not know is that Jesus can raise the dead. He doesn't know that. So he's wild with urgency. Come, quick, come down and save my son. You would expect Jesus to have a very calm and loving response, right? Like, oh man, I'm so sorry. You must be in so much pain. I'm sorry for all you're going through. Your family must be, be grieving over this. You'd, you'd think that he would have a nice response like that, right? That's, how, that's Jesus. Like he'd have a nice response. Jesus says something that seems incredibly unkind. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, some of your versions uh, recognize that this is in the plural. And so some versions say, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Does that sound sensitive? It doesn't. Imagine you were going to the hospital to see a friend. And the friend says, will you pray for me that God might heal me? And imagine that you roll your eyes at that person and say, yeah, yeah. Unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe, right? You think, whoa, that's, that's not right. They don't, they don't teach you that in compassion school. That, that, seems, that seems wrong. What's Jesus doing? You know, there are times where Jesus operates as a coach. There are times where Jesus operates with the compassion of an elder brother or a dad. This is not one of those times. This is one of those times where Jesus acts as a coach. Here is a royal official who is used to getting his own way. Here's a royal official who's used to powering his way into everything and getting his way. And here's Jesus functioning like a coach, challenging him and us and the disciples, exhorting us, urging us, moving us into a place where we will be decisive about his lordship. I'm glad Jesus does that sometimes. Because if Jesus is only uh, operating as you know, just Mr. Kind, nice guy, you know, things don't get done. Sometimes Jesus had to urge and exhort and coach and impel. And that's what he's doing in this place here because he wants this man from Capernaum, this royal official, be, to be decisive about his lordship. Now, let me just pause for a second and say, Jesus is not criticizing a desire to see the miraculous. Miracles are crucial 
They're crucial to the gospel of John. Um, but Jesus' question here is, is this. Do you have to have the miracle to believe? Are you willing to trust me even if there's, own, there's no miracle? Are you willing to depend upon me even if there is no sign or wonder? Yeah, the focus is on him. So um, we should want him first, him most. At the same time, we should want the supernatural to draw us to him. But he's, he's the focus. So let's go back to the scene. I want you to imagine this man's face as Jesus makes the statement. Has anybody ever talked to that man this way before? Unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. He's not used to this, but he's unfazed. Remember, he's a dad first, politician second. And so he says, literally, please come down before my little child dies. I love the way this is worded because he uses grammatically the diminutive form of the word child. It's like he's saying, please come down before, before little Tommy dies before little Susie dies, before little Jimmy dies. I mean, this guy is feeling the weight of his son's sickness. And now comes the, the complete unexpected. He says, go, your son lives. Now, if, if you're there and you're that man, you're thinking, wait, what? Wait, can, can you do that? Can, can you really heal at a distance like that? And, and like, I'm a royal official. I got to know if this is true. How can I be sure this is true? I, I, I suspect those things are going through his mind. Go, your son lives. He's thinking, uh, okay, what do we do now? Uh, okay, um, wow. What Jesus has just done is he has forced this father to walk by faith for the next 24 hours. He's forced this father to believe before he sees. He's forced this father to wrestle with whether he will walk in the word of Christ or whether he's going to walk in his own doubt. What's so important for us to understand about this is that miracles are never one size fits all. They're never one size fits all. I want, you to remind, want to remind you, miracles are central to the purpose of the gospel of John. They're perp the central of the purpose of the gospel of John. Um, <clears throat> listen, this guy's going to go back to Capernaum. There's Capernaum today. There's Capernaum the way it was in the first century. A miracle has taken place there, but the guy's going to have to walk in faith first. So th th think about how miracles work in the gospel of John. Um, <clears throat> We have seven, seven signs in John's gospel. He changes the water to wine. He heals the nobleman's son. He heals the paralytic guy, the paralyzed guy at Bethesda. He feeds 5,000. He walks in the water. He heals the man born blind, and he raises Lazarus. You could say that an eighth miracle was, was the raising, his own raising from the dead, but th those are the seven miracles in John's gospel. Every one of these miracles functions in a different way in John's gospel. It's never one size fits all. The purpose for the miracles are clear from John 20, 21. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. They're not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
The purpose of miracles is first that I will believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And that I would live in the fullness of that miraculous worldview. That I would have life in his name because I know that I serve a risen Lord who is able to do the miraculous. But I would also say that what's better than miracles is if I'm willing to believe in the absence of the miracle that's given. That was Thomas. Jesus says to Thomas, he believed because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Miracles are for a purpose. And the purpose is that we would believe and have life, but it's really good if we're able to believe before we see. And that's what Jesus forces the nobleman to do. So how does the story end? Well, the man believes intellectually that Jesus healed his son, but he hasn't crossed the line of faith yet. And ironically, he doesn't go back to Capernaum just yet. If you, if you take the time markers in the story, what you realize is that he spent the night in Cana, got up the next morning, and he rode back to Capernaum the next day. Now think about what that night must have been like for him, lying there in bed. He's, he's oh, oh gosh, you know, Lord, did it happen? Or maybe he's not praying yet. Maybe he's just thinking, did, did, did it happen? Did it not happen? Oh, what's going to happen to my son? He's tossing and he's turning and he, he says, do I believe the word of Jesus? Or do I live in the space of doubt? He is forced to wrestle with the word of Jesus. Is that really true yet? Um, before the sun is up the next day, you can bet these guys mount up their horses. They ride furiously from the hills of Cana down below sea level to the village of Capernaum. But amazingly, while he's on his way, his servants are coming out from Capernaum, going along the path. He sees his servants. He pulls up and stops his horses and listens to their message. They say, Mr. Royal Official, your son is recovering. <laughs> this guy, I'm sure, paused to let this thing sink in. Wow. Waves of relief are flowing over him. And then faith kicks in. He says, what time did it start? You got to tell me, what time did it start? They get out their Apple iWatch 3s, and they say, they give him, give him the time. Seventh hour, they say. He does some quick mental calculation, and he smiles. That's the exact time of Jesus' pronouncement. Jesus did a miracle. He healed at a distance. And this guy becomes a Christian. He's born again. Now, think about the, the drama of this as you're reading the Gospel of John. We would never expect the Samaritan woman to be born again, would we? Never. We would never expect the royal official to be born again. Never. And yet these are the people 